Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, December 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hospitals are expecting shipments of the coronavirus vaccine in an effort to protect frontline workers. Then a new report details Mississippi's teacher shortage crisis and the dried up educator pipeline. Plus, after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we look at how children in the state are faring during the coronavirus pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Boxes of the Pfizer coronavirus vaccine packed in dry ice are arriving at hospitals in Mississippi. The initial allocation of 25,000 doses is being distributed throughout the state and frontline workers and long-term care residents are being prioritized. Lee Bond, CEO of Singing River Health System, says their first box of the vaccine arrived yesterday afternoon and was loaded into special freezers. He tells our Kobe Vance the 975 doses they received will cover the frontline workers in the system's three hospitals. We have 3,000 total employees among our three hospitals in Gulfport, Pascagoula, and Ocean Springs. But the ones who qualify for phase 1A are those who are frontline direct patient care, and we will have enough to cover those. That's great. Um, so can you tell me about uh, the rollout? How, how long do you think it's, is it going to take to get those vaccines to all those people? And um, what are your hopes for the, the coming weeks? We have a very robust delineated plan that our human resources team and our clinical team work together on. We should be able to administer those uh, to those people, uh, possibly be done by Friday. Um, and then uh, after that, for the uh, other phases, you know, it'll be dependent upon when we are shipped uh, the remaining uh, supply for, for other people, including, you know, those that we help in the out in the community, whether it's home health or first responders or whatnot. And so what does this first round of vaccines mean for your hospital? Well, I'll say it this way. The, the There are still a lot of things people can do to prevent the spread of the virus. Obviously, the things that we've been uh, preaching, you know, isolate if you're ill, uh, don't be a close talker, things like that. So, and everyone doesn't have the vaccine. So I think we still need to work on those things. I do have some concern that the world will let its guard down a little bit, knowing that the vaccine is, you know, here and around the corner. But uh, we're we're excited and we're happy that that the frontline workers, the people, the heroes that are the warriors fighting on the front lines, will be able to, you know, receive the vaccine and and help 
put them in a safer position to help the community that we serve. Are, do you all have the storage materials required to uh, keep the Pfizer vaccine ready? We do. We have the ultra-cold freezers. We could store up to 5,000. I think we, uh, with the other shipment methods that have been developed with dry ice and everything, I think we'll have plenty of capacity to serve, uh, you know, however many people we are, uh, we need to in our community. So, yes, we feel very good about the supply situation. And, you know, I've, I've heard some concerns from doctors and nurses that saying that this is still an early vaccine and they're not entirely sure about the vaccine trials just yet. What, what are y'all doing in, in terms of education and trying to get people vaccinated that are still might be on the fence about whether they want to do it or not? Well, we're not making it mandatory uh, for that very reason. Uh, you know, people's uh, concerns that may be out there, we respect, uh, you know, people's opinions. But the science and the methodology with which this was developed from everything we've seen appears to be uh, very sound. And so we're we're very comfortable um, it. You know, when 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 I, as a, a non-frontline worker, am uh, eligible in my phase, I will be uh, right there in line to uh, get the vaccine like everyone else. Because the main issue is that the damage from, uh, you know, getting the coronavirus and, and the things that can cause, which we don't we don't know. We probably know less about the uh, the long term effects of that than I think everyone in the world realizes of, of having uh, COVID-19. So. Uh, for that reason, I personally believe that the risk of getting the vaccine uh, is far, far less than any risk of any side effect. And obviously, there's the one in a thousand people who may have a, uh, an allergy or reaction, but that is, that is very uh, rare from what we understand. And, and last thing, um, how are things looking in your hospital when it comes to hospitalizations? And do you think that this is going to help um, with that? that? Do you think the vaccine is going to help with that at all? I think it will help. I, again, don't think it is a complete panacea to the whole problem. I think we'll still experience quite a bit of, uh, you know, COVID-related uh, illnesses over time. And I think that it's still going to be a challenge through the winter as people are in their homes. Uh, the largest source of transmission, according to our contact tracing, is people gathering in their homes. Uh, I think people would go to work more and stay home less. Maybe the virus would spread a little bit less. But I think that it's um, it's going to be a tough winter, even with the vaccine. And we are, for example, today, uh, we have our highest number. We have 54 inpatients uh, today who are positive, and our highest previous peak was 52. So uh, we may not have hit the, the peak just yet, but we do see uh, a good uh, future ahead. I think we're going to be in a lot better position as time marches on. Lee Bond is the CEO of Singing River Health System. Coming up, a new report details Mississippi's teacher shortage crisis and the dried-up educator pipeline. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. 
Mississippi's public education system has faced unprecedented hurdles this year with hybrid classrooms and virtual learning creating new challenges for teachers and administrators alike. But the pandemic is also highlighting one of the state's more persistent dilemmas, a critical teacher shortage. Now, a new study shows a sharp decline in college graduates deciding to enter the field of education, causing the state's educator pipeline to dry up. The report, compiled by Mississippi First, reveals the state saw a more than 30 percent drop in in-state college graduates becoming teachers within a four-year span. Torin Boward is the study's project director. He says legislative measures like teacher pay raises could help reverse the trend. Mississippi's teacher shortage is no secret. What hasn't been acknowledged is that Mississippi's pipeline of new educators used to be fairly stable. So for years, Mississippi schools could rely on a steady stream of over 2,000 teachers graduating from in-state educator preparation programs, as well as hundreds of new teachers from out-of-state educator preparation programs. But about six years ago, this educator pipeline began to rapidly deteriorate. In the course of just four years, there were 32% fewer in-state educator preparation program graduates. And at the same time, the out-of-state pipeline essentially disappeared altogether with a 96% drop in out-of-state educator preparation program graduates coming to Mississippi. Now, what's really terrifying is that we're seeing these trends in the midst of an ongoing critical teacher shortage in about one-third of Mississippi school districts. Are there students who choose to major in um, education, in teaching, who then just leave the state and teach elsewhere? Yes. So what we're seeing in our research is actually when talking to a lot of teachers, um, we talked to plenty of teachers who went to school in Mississippi. They even maybe started off as teachers in Mississippi public schools. But the problem with the extremely low teacher salaries that are offered to teachers throughout the state have made it so difficult for these teachers to make a living. They have families here. They grew up here. They want to teach here. But we have talked to so many teachers who, even if they remain living in Mississippi, are going and teaching across state lines in Arkansas, in Tennessee. Um, They're moving to places like Georgia. And all of these states offer teacher salaries that are thousands of dollars above what is available in Mississippi. And so the incentive for them to leave the state and go teach elsewhere is extremely clear. And unfortunately, the state is not doing a lot to keep these teachers, these really extremely talented teachers in the state. In presenting this data, Mississippi First is also presenting some recommendations. Can you share those with us? Sure. So the first recommendation, and these are in, not in order of importance, but our first recommendation is an across-the-board salary increase for all Mississippi public school teachers of $3,000. And this will be essential to really helping Mississippi teachers be able to earn a living and also really incentivize them to stay in the state. Now, our second recommendation is to give specifically those teachers who teach in critical shortage areas, and that is about one-third of all Mississippi school districts, is to provide those teachers with a $3,000 stipend to incentivize them to move to those districts and to stay in those districts. 
And then finally, we also really want to incentivize teachers or aspiring teachers to really join the educator pipeline as college students. And so what we want to do here is to essentially pilot a program that would offer teacher candidates, generally in their junior and senior years, a grant when they join their educator preparation program at their college. And so provide them with a grant, no strings attached, for two years. And then those same students who then eventually go on to teach in critical shortage areas after they graduate is then further incentivize that move by providing those teachers with loan repayment assistance for up to four years as necessary. Torin Ballard is the director of K-12 Education Policy for Mississippi First. Torin, thank you very, very much. Thank you so much. Thanks for putting a spotlight on this really important issue. According to the Mississippi Department of Education, the minimum salary for a first-time teacher is just under $36,000. Republican Dennis DeBar of Leakesville is the Senate Education Chairman. He tells our Ashley Norwood lawmakers will be considering a combination of things in the 2021 session. The teacher pay raise will be $1,000, but it'll also it'll be a little bit more for starting teachers. It'll make the starting pay $37,000. Uh, the, the pay raise will also include teachers' assistance as well. And so, you know, if we, if, like I said earlier, it's a combination of things to help incentivize and, and really attract bright young uh, students to become teachers. And so do I think it will happen? Yes. I think revenue hopefully will stay like it is, and we can use approximately the $70 million it will take to fund the pay raise uh, to make it happen. Talk about why it's important to be investing in um, in this pipeline for young students in college or people who may be in other careers but decide they want to work in our public school districts and to teach children. Why is it important to invest in teachers? Well, we're talking about the, the leaders of our the gener- next generations and generations to come. And where else could you have such an influence as to educate the, the leaders of our state in the future. So uh, we need to attract the best and the brightest to, to educate our students. Um, and if we don't do that, then we're, you know, got, not helping our state uh, become more economically viable. Um, and, and so it's imperative that we bring teachers that have a passion for, for teaching or a passion for helping our students, and, you know, what better public service can you do than educating uh, a young student's mind and helping them discover what they want to do with their life. So um, it's, a, it's a difficult career, um, especially with COVID, but we need bright, young, passionate people to come into the field to help re- uh, educate our next generation. Senator Dennis DeVar, Jr., Education Chairman in the Senate. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, call me anytime. Coming up after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, we look at how children in the state are faring during the coronavirus pandemic. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. 
Hi, this is Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Nursing and Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and you're listening to a Southern Remedy Health Minute. I would like to know if going on a two-day fast would slow down your metabolism too much, just two days? Completely fasting 24 hours? With just water and maybe a little fruit juice, just a little bit. You know, I, I don't love fasts like that for, for a variety of reasons. Um, one is if you have any medical conditions at all, then that can be, be dangerous, especially things like diabetes, especially if you have, you know, issues with, with controlling your blood sugar. So anytime somebody's undertaken a, a fast to that degree, you need to make sure that you talk with your primary care provider or dietitian first before you do that. Um, In terms of um, fasting, the things that have been shown to to work a little bit better are more of the intermittent fasting or the time-restricted eating patterns. Um, But again, the quality of the diet has to be there first. So it's not just about, you know, eating whatever we want in an eight-hour window of time. It's about good quality nutrition and then, you know, kind of built-in times of restrictions. In general, if you're doing it to, you know, to lose weight or to kind of reset or detox or any of those kinds of things, there's just there's just better ways uh, to do it. And I'm just not a fan of the kind of all liquid uh, extended fasts. For more health tips and medical info, tune in every weekday at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup where the doctors are always in. For MPB Think Radio, I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell. contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think "Eh, maybe i'll try it myself some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere no matter if you use an app to start your car or still have a flip phone everyday tech can decipher today's technology for tomorrow's solutions subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or the mpb public media app This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A new report from the Annie E. Casey Foundation shows children in Mississippi are facing serious hardship due to COVID-19. Issues like food insecurity, health care, poverty, and education have been amplified during the coronavirus pandemic. And as a result, Mississippi's children are struggling to have basic needs met. Linda Southward is with the Children's Foundation of Mississippi. It should not really be a surprise that Mississippi's children are not faring well during this pandemic. Uh, We knew before the pandemic that among food insecure counties, Mississippi has some of the highest percentage of food insecure counties. So what the report told us from the U.S. Household Survey that uh, one in four families, one in four families with children are 25 percent said that in the most recent week, uh, there was sometimes or not always enough food to eat in their household. So that was one finding. We also know that families are concerned about housing stability. A little more than one in five households with children said they had only slight confidence or no confidence at all that they'd be able to make their next rent or mortgage payment. Are some families struggling because... 
of the isolation, not only isolation of where they live in rural areas of the state, but because there's isolation due to sheltering in place or, or not being able to travel, kids not going to school, that sort of thing? Well, when you take a look at the question about uh, mental health, uh, Mississippian families reported on this survey that nearly one in three uh, reported that they had um, felt hopeless or depressed the previous uh, week and that they also indicated a, a need for access to mental health. In many places, unfortunately, the lack of broadband connectivity um, far distance learning. It's just a tremendous amount of additional stress on families that perhaps and were already struggling before the pandemic. You know, about 29% of Mississippi's children live in poverty. And that is uh, that for 2020 was $26,200. Think about that amount of money for a family of four. And then you have the pandemic and the concerns with education and isolation, as you say, on top of that. It's really, I think the, I think the name of the report is really accurate about pandemic pain points for families, not only in Mississippi, but across the country. Linda, from everything we hear, this pandemic will last for months longer, even with the promise of the vaccine becoming more widely available, but months ahead. And if children and families are suffering now, uh, certainly it's not going to get better until it's over. But in the meantime, what kind of emergency services might be available to aid these families, to help these children? Well, we know throughout the state that private and public sectors are coming together, and it absolutely needs to be a combination of private and public sectors. You don't have to go far around the metro area, within the metro area, and and throughout the state to learn and know about the number of food pantries and people working within food pantries that really are overwhelmed with the with the needs that are out there. So I would encourage people to call their local United Way, certainly the um, the Department of Human Services, some of the the regular um, state-funded organizations, and then also through the Alliance of Nonprofits and Philanthropy in Mississippi, there are uh, volunteer hubs. And I I know that these volunteer hubs and many connected with community foundations are doing an amazing job in understanding more about the needs across the state and how people can be plugged in. Are there any bright spots in this report? Not necessarily bright spots in the report itself. However, as far as the silver lining, is what is happening right now with the Department of Education. Because the Department of Education early on saw this and with the combination of private and public support were able to say, okay, we know we have children who do not have um, laptops, do not have the, the devices that they need. So Mississippi was able to get at the beginning with a large order. And at the same time, it has really catapulted a lot of discussion around the importance of connectivity issues. But when you look at the work of the public service commissioners, you look at the amount of 
funding that just came to Mississippi very recently um, to really promote this. Those are bright spots, and those are some things that beyond the pandemic, our children are going to be able to benefit from. Uh, how can people access this report from the Annie E. Casey Foundation? Yes, Karen, it's quite simple. Just go to the Annie E. Casey Foundation website, and that's AECL.org. All right. Linda Southward is the director of Mississippi Kids Count. Thank you so much, Linda, for sharing this information with us. Thank you, Karen, for the opportunity. We appreciate you and MPB. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.